Happy New Year. So we all made it, kicking and screaming just barely into 2021. It's New Year's Day, and for a change, I thought that I would not just take you back in time, because most of the time I take you back in time, but take you back in time to where I started, where the cemetery thing started. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View. So this is an episode that I've been wanting to do for a while, and a few people have actually reached out to me about it because it's something that I mention quite frequently. And if you have been listening since the beginning, um, I apologize for the first few episodes. I know that they are not great. Um, I actually have re-released the first nine episodes with a new introduction. Uh, I am working my way up to getting all of them reintroduced. But... When Ashley and I introduced ourselves, we talked a little bit about where our passion for cemeteries came from. So if you are a more recent listener, which I I assume most people are and they didn't start from the beginning, I'm going to take you back there because it's a good story and it's a New Year's story. So on New Year's Day, 2007... So get into your DeLorean. We're going to zip back 14 years ago. I don't know why I was on the east side of Providence, but I was. I think I may have been returning a Christmas gift. It was New Year's Day and it was snowing. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the geography of the east side in a little while, so I won't bore you with the details, but... As I was heading back to the highway, Route 95, I passed the gates of Swan Point Cemetery. And I had never been there, but I had heard about it. Um, At that point, two years before when my father died, he was actually cremated at Swan Point. And it's something that, like, just in regular parlance, and if you're not from New England, you might not understand this, but... Cemeteries are a very big part of life in New England, and I know I've discussed this before, but in Rhode Island in particular, cemeteries are everywhere. For such a small state, we have thousands of them, and this mainly has to do with the religious beliefs. It has to do with the settlement patterns. There there are a lot of reasons for this, but even in small towns, you can sometimes have hundreds of cemeteries. Providence is a little bit different, and I will talk about that. But Swan Point, along with the North Burial Ground, it is the Grand Pappy. And it has a very impressive entrance. The entrance is made of these gigantic boulders. And the largest boulder is right in the center. It's a one-in, one-out gateway between the rocks. And it has in bronze letters on there, Swan Point Cemetery. So they're beautiful, weathered green. And so for no particular reason, because it was New Year's Day and I didn't have anywhere to go, because at the time I was a teacher, so I was on Christmas vacation, I pulled in. And I drove. And it was snowing, and it was the wet kind of snow with huge, wet, fat flakes. So it almost looked like it was solid. It looks like in It's a Wonderful Life when George is running and they make the snow out of soap flakes. That's what it looked like. And I just drove for probably a half an hour, 45 minutes, and I was entranced, and I fell in love. 
Swan Point is a rural cemetery. It is founded at the height of the rural cemetery movement. It's one of the early ones. It is picturesque in its location. It is everything that a rural cemetery promises. It has the grand entrance. It has beautiful buildings. It has monumental architecture. It has breathtaking views over the Seekonk River. It has the hills and dales and little paths. It has everything that rural cemeteries promise. And at that point in my life, I didn't even know what a rural cemetery was. I didn't know that there was this great annal of cemetery history and that this particular piece of land helped tell part of that story. But suffice it to say, I fell in love. And I was interested enough that... That semester, that January, I started a class on the history of Rhode Island. And when it came time to write my term paper, I chose to write it on Swan Point Cemetery. And the name of that term paper was Tomb of the View. So that's where it started with me. And things kind of went from there. My, my interest in cemetery started to develop. I read a few of... At the time, the classics, that's when I first read The Last Great Necessity by um, Charles David Sloan um, and a number of other books. It kind of snowballed from there. And, you know, many years later, so it would be probably about five years before I started on my graduate degree at SCAD, I always still had that underlying interest in cemeteries. And it was not something, again, if you are a longtime listener, you know this, that was fostered. Um, I was told very pointedly that I should be careful not to wear too much black because if I was researching cemeteries, it would give me give people the wrong idea about me. When I listed Mount Auburn Cemetery on my final exam for my degree, where we had to basically create a syllabus about significant buildings in history and we had 10 free choices and I chose Mount Auburn, it raised a few eyebrows. But arguably, the rural cemetery movement and, you know, American cemeteries in general, aside from Europe, have revolutionized the way that the world works. Here's a hint. Most of the buildings I chose were all about engineering, things like pumping stations and cemeteries. There's only so many pretty houses that you can talk about. Because at the end of the day, pretty houses don't, you know, collect your garbage and incinerate it, and they don't dispose of the dead properly or house prisoners, those type of functional buildings can still be beautiful and they can still be remarkable in terms of their engineering and architecture without necessarily being pretty. Though often they are. And I chose to do my thesis, which is also called Tomb with a View. So yes, when I chose the name of this podcast, it was not coincidental. Certainly, it's a play on E.M. Forrester's novel, Room with a View, which I'm sure most of you have already picked up on. But it's also the idea that when we see a place that's associated with death care, when we see cemeteries, people see a lot of different things. They are outdoor sculpture gardens. They are genealogy and history resources. They are collections of people. They are collections of different communities, whether they be ethnic or social communities. But in some cases, they are also the driving forces for change. And the reason I chose to do my thesis on Swamp Point is because I do think it's a unique example of not just a cemetery that was a 
vehicle for change in a place, but also a pretty unique example of how a cemetery continued to make itself necessary to its community. In ways that go beyond the basic, in ways that go beyond being a place to bury the dead. And I think that this is something that is really pretty vital today. And it's something that I have seen dozens of news articles since the pandemic started about how cemeteries continue to be vital. When there has been an ongoing push since the 1970s, when HUD declared that cemeteries serve only a transient purpose, that they should be placed in locations like the noise zones around airports or underneath highway overpasses because they don't serve the living. They only serve the dead. And obviously, I run a cemetery podcast, so I'm biased. And I just had this conversation with a friend of mine who was dealing with the fact that her grandfather was dying over Christmas and the sort of squabbles about where he would be buried. And she was frustrated because she was saying, you know, nobody asked me, you know, if my grandparents and my parents are buried here, nobody asked me if I want to take care of their grave. And I was a little taken aback because obviously I'm a cemetery podcast person, but it's a valid point. And it's one of the reasons that we do deal with abandoned cemeteries is that families sometimes don't take care of graves for whatever reason. Some people have a hard time visiting the cemetery. Some people don't want to do that. Some people were never asked or consulted in the choice. Or in some cases, people move away and it's difficult to come back and do that maintenance. So the fact that cemeteries can continue to make themselves vital in different ways is an important thing to remember. And it's something that kind of came across to me that I recently rewatched the movie Spotlight, which if you have not seen it, it's it's a very, very strong one, best picture at the Academy Awards in 2015. And it's about the Spotlight team of the Boston Globe that uncovered the church sex abuse scandal. And at that point in 2001, 2002, and I remember this pretty vividly because I lived through it in New England, there was the question of when the internet started to cut in and started to take over advertising and started to be where people got their news, how did newspapers remain relevant? Well, they remain relevant by telling the stories that are very important to their readers. And I think that cemeteries remain relevant by serving the needs of their community. And that's why I think that the story of Swan Point, unfortunately, in the cemetery world is very underappreciated. If you look up Swan Point Cemetery, you're probably going to hear about H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft is great. I actually have a t-shirt that has his epitaph on it. So I appreciate the Cthulhu just as much as the next person. Don't get me wrong. But the story of Swan Point is much more important. And I want to share it because I think on New Year's Day, especially 14 years later, I still think it's a good story, and I still think it's a story that needs to be told. So even if I'm the only one to tell it, I will. So I'm taking a somewhat unconventional approach to this episode in that I am going to read to you from my actual thesis. Bear with me, I will be skipping around a little bit because if you have ever written a thesis, you know that there are things like historiography and methodology a lot of which is background that if you are a longtime listener, you already have. So you don't need to hear about the Grove Street Burial Ground and Mount Auburn. Like I said, if you've been listening for a while, you know all of that general history. So I'm going to skip over that. I will talk about the relevant history of the city of Providence, Rhode Island, 
and go from there. Um, <laughs> likewise, I apologize in advance for my writing. It obviously probably is not as good as uh, maybe it would be today. I wrote this about five years ago, six years ago. So it's been a while. Uh, it's been a while since I've even looked at it. But like I said, a lot of people have asked for the Swamp Point episode and it seemed like it would be fun. So bear with me. The neighborhood of Blackstone in Providence, Rhode Island, is a picturesque landscape of manicured boulevards, palatial homes, and quaint parks, all lining the bluff overlooking the Seekonk River. Before these leafy streets were lined with million-dollar homes and running paths, the land that they today occupy was largely empty, occupied by a handful of scattered farms and swampland. This land, despite its relative proximity to some of the busiest and oldest parts of the city of Providence, resisted development until almost the turn of the 20th century. Despite the massive growth of the city in the mid-19th century, expansion of the residential area did not migrate to this part of the city until much later. The swampy land and high elevation made accessing the area difficult, and it required riding two omnibuses through the neighboring city of Pawtucket. In fact, the neighborhood of Blackstone is the only neighborhood in Providence where the majority of building and development occurred after the turn of the 20th century. The central factor that facilitated the economic development of Blackstone is somewhat unusual, though an examination of the immediate area reveals the factor as the largest feature that dominates the overall landscape. Swamp Point Cemetery. This cemetery covers more than 150 acres in Blackstone and was the impetus for the transformation of this area from rural and agricultural in nature to an upper-class residential and light commercial section. An examination of the emerging city of Providence shows how the cemetery fulfilled not only a civic need as the population exploded in the mid-19th century, but also provided an economic impetus for the expansion of commerce and civic infrastructure to the city's northeastern limits. In the century following the foundation of Swamp Point Cemetery in 1847, this neighborhood was transformed due to the presence of the cemetery, which attracted visitors from all social classes, encouraged the growth of transportation, and, and provided an economic base for new industry. As the 20th century emerged, they would become major creators of residential plots of land, which could create the culture that pervades the neighborhood today. Swamp Point represents a unique example among 19th century rural cemeteries that has not only adapted over time, but also made development decisions that went far beyond the corporation itself to shape an entire landscape within the city. Death and worldview. Oh boy, I'm already cringing. The city of Providence was shaped by the core values established from the foundation of the colony of the Rhode Island and Providence plantations, a name which was recently changed via vote up in Rhode Island. I'm not going to voice my opinions on that, but it is what it is. <clears throat> Founded in 1636 by Roger Williams, the purpose for the foundation of the colony had been to escape the theocratic leadership in the Puritan colonies of Boston, Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, and Salem. A nonconformist minister, Williams, and a group of like-minded individuals had been exiled and sailed south before settling in what is today Providence. Their defection was based on laws prohibiting all other faiths, including Anglicans, Baptists, and Quakers, from practicing their religion within the colony. 
the colony that they today founded would have at its center the separation of church and state. There are many houses of worship that would be founded in the new colony, including the First Baptist Church in America, founded in 1744. However, the founders of Providence diverged almost immediately from the cultural traditions of their Puritan ancestors. And this is where I'm going to kind of skip over a little bit because I have talked a lot about the Puritan tradition in a lot of different forms. So I don't know if we need to go into the theocratic history and quite frankly, you guys have already heard it. So I'm not going to go too deeply into that. Though now that I'm skimming over it, it's not bad. Roger Williams and his followers, however, did not fit into the Puritan mindset, and the settlement of Providence clearly illustrates this. The town of Providence was originally settled on what is today College Hill, not far from their initial landing spot on the Seekonk River. So College Hill, I'm going to interject here just to give some context. This is where Brown University, the Rhode Island School of Design is today. It kind of looms over downtown. So if you've ever had to go to a conference or something in downtown, it's very clearly easy to see where College Hill is. It's hard to miss. It's a big old hill. Each family was allotted a thin strip of land arranged in parallel bands going up the hill. This meant that there was equal access to resources at all points on the hill, starting at the river and moving upward. The remains of the original plan can still be seen today as the name of the streets that run along the original land grants climb College Hill. So, for example, Angel and Waterman are not just contemporary streets, but the names of original settlers allotted land in the town of Providence. This plan also meant that there was no central feature of the town and wouldn't be for almost a century. While public buildings did begin to develop at the base of the hill, the majority of buildings did not occur into the revolutionary period when some of the more recognizable features still remain, including the First Baptist Church and Market Square, built in 1744 and 1773 respectively. And I bring that up because if you are a longtime listener, you know that the town green or the town square was a very central idea to the majority of Puritan communities. I posted uh, a video of me at the Harvard Shaker Cemetery on Facebook and Instagram yesterday, I think. And that is a town that, to me, has a classic New England setup. Providence was not like that. And I do have a great plot that shows the original plan. So I will definitely post that because it's crazy to see this, but it also makes a lot of sense when you think about a city planning perspective. The lack of public buildings in no way affected private building, and indeed the development of the land started almost immediately with a close-knit but distinctly independent community developing. The spirit of the individual and development of non-communal spaces particularly extended to burial grounds. Early Providence is noteworthy in the fact that for the first 70 years of its existence, there was no communal burying ground, which you guys know is a very common feature to most New England towns but rather only individual family burial plots on their land. While this practice is common in rural areas, with pioneer or frontier cemeteries or small family allotments on remote farms, it is much rarer in established and growing settlements. In fact, setting aside a place to safely and sanitarily dispose of society's dead is always a priority early on in the settlement. Why did this practice emerge in Providence? Though independent and nonconformist in nature, there was undoubtedly 
this was undoubtedly a contributing factor, it seems more likely that the lack of a state religion was more significant. With no church and a strict separation between the state and religion, establishing a quote-unquote churchyard for burial was not possible. And the new colony was not a theocracy that could establish a common burial ground under the auspices of government in conjunction with religion on common land. There was simply no precedent for establishing a common burial ground, so family cemeteries became the norm. Rhode Island in its early years was the only New England colony to continue this practice in larger settlements. Over time, there would be adjustments to how the surrounding colonies, later states, would handle burial differently, both in Connecticut and later Massachusetts. But Rhode Island was the first to explore new ways of handling the issue of burial, a precedent that would be set forth for its history in the 19th century. Only one of these cemeteries with a single burial remains today, the gravestone of Pardon Tillinghask, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church, shares its site with the family homestead and dates to 1770. The majority of the other dozens of family plots were deliberately moved in order to facilitate the construction of what is today Benefit Street, which, as its name suggests, is a street running across College Hill that would be to the benefit of all. Um, Benefit Street's still there today. Really one of the most lovely collections of buildings that you're going to see just about anywhere. So this is when the city starts to establish the North Burial Ground. Um, in 1700, the city set aside 45 acres for public use on the, former, uh, on the northern reaches of the settlement. Although established in 1700, the first burial at North Burial Ground did not occur until 1710. For the next 85 years, it would be the sole burial place for Providence's dead. And over the next three centuries, would be the burial place of more than 100,000. So, the North Burial Ground, if you have been to Providence, is hard to miss. Um, if you are on Route 95, heading south from Boston, you will see the North Burial Ground off on your left-hand side. It is massive. If you have taken the Peter Pan bus, the Peter Pan slash Bonanza bus depot is right next to the North Burial Ground. It's impossible to miss. So I go a little bit here, and you don't need to know this, but I just, I start this out by saying that Rhode Island already has a precedent for trying to use cemeteries as part of their overall planning. And they do it in a different way than everybody else. So I'm not going to go too deep into this because then I break down like all of the other cemeteries that are established and kind of what happens with them. Hint, they all get moved to North Barrow Round at some point. North Barrow Ground is still there. It's a fascinating place to study the transitions of styles because it is a public cemetery. It is owned by the city of Providence. Um, good friend of mine. Ashlyn Rickard Warner is actually the director of City Cemeteries in Providence. She is on the board of AGS with me. And North Barrow Ground is a classic example of a, a civil cemetery that they are starting to face, you know, running out of space and things like that. So I think that North Barrow Ground is a fascinating study in and of itself. Um, Round College did a really good study on it. Like I said, I'm not going to focus too much on it because we want to kind of skip ahead and talk more about Swan Point. I just mention it because you can't really talk about anything else without starting with North Barrow Ground. There are a lot of famous people buried there, and it is just massive. 
Um, I haven't visited in a couple of years, but you could wander for hours and there's lots to see with stuff from the early 1700s right up through this year. So it's definitely worth a visit. Um, it is not rural, it's not lawn park, it's not colonial, it's all of the above. Which is pretty unique, because there's not a lot of cemeteries that can say that. Alright, so let's fast forward. North Barrow Ground was a utilitarian barrel ground with little or no trees, and the grass over the years had acquired very little maintenance. There were a number of scattered and rambling additions, which made it feel less unified. Starting in the early 19th century, there are a number of complaints about the old North Barrel Ground and its unkempt appearance. So this is about 100 years after it's founded. Thomas C. Hartshorn, who will become the driving force beyond, behind creating, losing it, Swan Point Cemetery, consistently complains through the 1830s about the quote-unquote deplorable conditions of the city's burial ground. It took considerable convincing, however, to get the public to open up to this opinion. The number of investors willing to spend money on the establishment of a new cemetery, as well as the most immediate enthusiasm for burying lots, speaks not just to the popularity of the new style of cemetery, meaning the rural cemetery, but also the fact that the dissatisfaction of the population was slowly starting to grow. Providence would transition at this time to the fastest growing and most revolutionary trends in burials over the last thousand years. Burial grounds were taking on a new conceptualization and becoming privatized in ways that they had never been before. So again, this is something that you guys have already been over. You don't need to know about the rural cemetery movement and things like that. But I will stop here and say this. So Hartshorn did not have the easiest time. Unfortunately, we don't know a ton about him. So like I've talked about James Hillhouse, who founded the Grove Street Burial Ground. You know, he was a senator. Hartshorn, from what I can tell, he was a teacher. And he was mainly concerned, and it's interesting because I can remember talking to the historian at Swamp Point about this. He was concerned about the burial of, I believe, his wife and child. That is what you find more than anything else, is that rural cemeteries are prompted by a desire and a need for a burial ground. It's an immediate desire. Um, obviously, there is... Also, you know, the popularity and the trend and things like that. But it does take one individual. And in this case, it's Hartshorn. And he's certainly not the same as, you know, Bigelow at Mount Auburn or James Hillhouse. But he is an educated man and he's certainly driven. So Providence, Rhode Island was ripe for a new rural cemetery by the time that Swan Point was begun in 1846. In the prior decade, between 1840 and 1850, the population of Providence had grown by 80%, growing from 23,171 in 1840 to 41,513 in 1850. The tremendous population growth had brought the cemetery issue to a sudden and necessary head. In a city where there was only one major burial ground, the sheer volume of burials and unorganized system resulted in poor conditions in the North Burial Ground. Thomas Hartshorn, the founder of Swan Point Cemetery, described this time in the first annual report of the cemetery. Quote, 
I endeavored to call the attention of the public to the desolate and neglected condition of our burial grounds and to the necessity of selecting some spot combining beauty of situation, amplitude of space, and capacity for improvement. But it resulted in no action on the part of the public, to whom the essays were addressed, although it was evident that every burial ground then in use will share the fate of others similarly situated, and overtaken by an extended population in all of our large cities. They will let them be turned into public places after the inhabitants of the neighborhood, from just consideration of health and morals, have remonstrated against all further internments in them. Which you got to give this guy credit. He saw exactly what would happen in the next century to, oh, I don't know, a lot of the cemeteries that we've talked about on this podcast. Let's think. Washington Square Park. Chessman Park in Denver. All of the Lone Mountain cemeteries in San Francisco. Monument Cemetery in Philadelphia. I could go on and on. Lincoln Park in Chicago. So he already foresees this. This is the 1830s. And he's already saying like, okay, as cities continue to grow, boy, that piece of land that has nothing but graves on it is going to start looking real sexy for development. And that's exactly what happens. So obviously... He decides to take a little trip and visit the principal rural cemeteries. He visits all of the ones as far south as Washington, D.C., which I think is pretty impressive for a school teacher at the time. But he wants to gain information before he goes to his investors. So then I go into the rural cemetery movement and its popularity. Okay. Again, I'm literally scrolling through this 60-page document. So Thomas Hortern's vision of a rural cemetery in Providence, Rhode Island, was slow in emerging. Once he had attracted investors, he sought a place for the cemetery near the location of the current burial ground. The land across the north burial ground, on the other side of what would eventually become Route 95, was later developed because it was purchased by the Providence and Worcester Railroad. It's so hard to get an idea of what this landscape looked like before 95, because 95 just cuts a gigantic gash all the way through Pawtucket, Providence, all of these urban areas. So it's really hard to get a picture of this. And if you drive there today, you're like, where would they have put it? But at this point, the railroad actually runs parallel to 95. Um, They did move a number of the burials in the North Burial Ground when they built 95. So what they decided to do was they decided to find a place that was completely immune to the threat of development saying, quote, it was by this lesson of the past that led to the selection of Swamp Point Cemetery, which is situated on land three miles from the center of the city and between the lands of Butler Hospital and Pawtucket. It is a site sufficiently near to be easy of access and sufficiently remote to escape being intruded upon by the necessities of a spreading population. This land is located on the banks of the Seekonk River in the city's extreme northeastern reaches. Much of the land actually originally fell in what was known as North Providence, though subsequent border agreements mean that it would almost be entirely in the city of Providence, with a small piece on its northern border extending into Pawtucket. The land was mostly occupied by farms and bordered what was known as the Great Cat Swamp. Other farmland was the only major institution that existed in the region, with the exception of Butler Hospital. The first psychiatric hospital in the region, the Gothic Revival Hospital, was constructed using capital from the investments of the industrialist Cyrus Butler. The entrepreneur had speculated on the construction of the Westminster Arcade, the first shopping mall in the United States, in 1828. 
Caught in the fervor of industrialization, Butler also believed that as cities grew and noblized, it was the responsibility of industrialists like himself to ensure that there were institutions to care for what were known as, quote, the unfortunate society. Butler Psychiatric Hospital was started in 1844. So Butler had only been there for a couple of years, so about three years prior to the founding of Swan Point. It is still there today. Um, fun fact, if you are an H.P. Lovecraft fan, uh, he and his family also spent some time at Butler, which I find ironic because they would end up spending eternity right next door at Swan Point. Understandably, the land around a psychiatric hospital was not immediately in demand for domestic development. However, in keeping with the social justice trend of development that was popular at the time, moving the cemetery site there was highly desirable. Butler's campus was large and offered isolation for its patients, but also was a buffer for the seclusion of the cemetery. So far as human foresight can now discern, Swan Point Cemetery, secluded from the busy haunts of active life, with its boundaries protected by the river and by lands devoted to other business purposes, has every element to induce us to believe that its location must be permanent. And... When they did the centennial history, there's some great maps that show this, um, and I will definitely try to share some of those on social media. Over time, the farmland surrounding the cemetery would also provide the possibility for expansion. The Cartland Farm was purchased in 1879, and the orchard there was removed. The land, drain, land was drained, and permanent drains installed as well as well fertilized. The land of Hannah W. Perry was acquired in 1882, Lindia C. Nichols in 1885, and John Morris in 1886. These three land acquisitions would increase the cemetery to more than 90 acres. Again, these are what it makes more sense when you see it in maps. But essentially, Swan Point is acquiring land that, if you know anything about farming in New England, it's a pretty thankless task. It's pretty miserable. Nobody wants to do it. They were acquiring land that was swampy, rocky, and they were transforming it for a purpose. The reason that there is a boulder wall around Swan Point Cemetery is those are the boulders that they pulled up. And I do have a great photograph of them building the rock wall, which I will definitely post. You know, from the last ice age, you know, those giant sheets of ice scraped across New England left a lot of rocks. They pulled these rocks up when they were processing it. They were taking land that was really not great arable land, to be honest. These farmers were probably eking out a living. And they were taking land that was otherwise undesirable. They were putting in the civic infrastructure to make it useful. And this is something that I really do not think is talked about quite a bit um, in any cemetery story. By 1898, so I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit in the timeline here, so it's founded in 1847. By 1898, Swan Point owns essentially the entire neighborhood of Blackstone, or what is today Blackstone. They also were important because the removal of other burial grounds, primarily the West Burial Ground, which I didn't talk about, were being moved there. There is a part of Swan Point right at the center, it's called Pastor's Rest, where other cemeteries are moved there. Um, the First Congregational Society, that there are some maps that show all of these groups being moved. This is not uncommon. So they are starting to basically outpace the North Barrel Ground in terms of popularity. And that's the reason for the exponential growth. 
There are a lot of governors who are buried there. There are a lot of mayors who are buried there. It becomes the sexy elite spot to be buried. The same way that this happens with Mount Auburn, the same way that this happens with Laurel Hill and Philadelphia. And I just had this conversation with somebody where we were talking about, you know, why certain rural cemeteries fail. And I think it's oversaturation. There can only be one OG rural cemetery. There can only be one that attracts all the movers and shakers. And a lot of people try to emulate it, but trying to capture lightning in a bottle is difficult sometimes. There are really, there's only so many beautiful picturesque locations where other rural cemeteries are just going to suffer by comparison. Um, And I know it's kind of harsh to say, but that's part of the problem. So, we have exponential growth. We have a real movement of people to wanting to go there. So, the overwhelming control that the corporation had on the neighborhood would move forward into the 20th century. As I have previously observed, Blackstone is the only neighborhood in Providence where the development occurred post-turn of the century. This would allow them to truly shape the progress of development from public roads and transportation to the eventual transition of parts of land to residential development. The rapid growth of the cemetery was both due to the popularity of the trend and the beauty of the location, but also because the cemetery purposely timed and allowed development for ease of access and comfort of visitors. They controlled it from becoming overwhelming and causing overcrowding, which would have happened in the city center. Though the quote offered in the 1876 annual report states that Swan Point Cemetery was a, quote, site sufficiently near to be easy of access, in reality it was anything but. The bluff that Swan Point Cemetery sits on overlooking the Seekonk River was not only remote from the city center by three miles, but also located on the high promontory across College Hill. The stretch of swampy, undeveloped land that separated it from the city center was really difficult to traverse. What was known as the quote-unquote neck road ran through the property. This had been used as a post road since colonial times, but it was still not as well developed as those inside the city. So the neck road is interesting. Um, You can see it. It runs basically right along the bank of the river. Um, The neck road is no longer open. It was closed, I believe, in the 40s. But... Picture uh, essentially a rocky, unpaved road that went along the cliffs. That's what you're talking about. And this obviously is not sufficient for actually getting people there. The post road is meant to be more of a utilitarian road. It does not necessarily connect to the city center. And one of the most important aspects of the rural cemetery model was that it was accessible to a wide variety of social classes. And they had different plot sizes specifically for this reason. Now, keep in mind, they were also meant to be tourist attractions, and often they limited Sundays to just lot holders because so many people came to see that. But because the cemetery was where it was, in the early years, only the wealthy could access it. So the well-developed roads they extended from the top of College Hill ended where Rochambeau Avenue stands today, which I know if you're not familiar with Providence doesn't mean anything, but it's pretty far. The Neck Road, which eventually merges with Hope Street further down, didn't really serve it. And these roads were only passable if you had a private vehicle. 
And these private vehicles had to be pretty capable because it's steep. If you have ever gone up College Hill, not something I recommend, but in the wintertime when it is icy, I used to put my emergency brake on when I would sit at traffic lights because that's how steep these hills are. The connector road is not the same. Something that you use with farm carts is not the same that you would use with a fine carriage. So all of these things are definitely challenges that they faced. So the first thing was is that they initially had an office located downtown. And a lot of rural cemeteries had this where they handled all of their lot sales at a remote location. Between 1848 and 1904, it existed at four different locations downtown. The lot sales were easily accessible, often at a fashionable address. This was the basic model that was used by a lot of rural cemeteries. And it's interesting, um, they actually had communication that went via horse and carriage until 1879 when they installed a telephone and so that the downtown office could actually talk to the cemetery. The end of the dual offices came in 1904 when two things happened. Blackstone Boulevard was completed and the trolley line was connected. Now, these are two things that we haven't really been talked about. Um, so where you see the entrance today is not where the original entrance was. It was much further down right next to where Butler Hospital was. Um, all of this reconfiguration mainly had to do with the moving of the office. They built the new office building, which was built in 1905. It is still there today. Um, part of a small complex of garden mausoleums, columbariums, and a crematory all of which were built at different times. But so this all happens around the turn of the century. That's what you really need to know. And this meant that everybody could be on site. But the question is, how does that happen? So let's go back a little bit. So the first public transportation came in the 1860s, and that was an omnibus. If you go back to the episode that I did on mortuary railroads, I talk about omnibuses with Mount Auburn as well. Um, omnibuses are essentially a bus pulled by horses. Um, and the omnibus ran to Swan Point three times a day from the Westminster Arcade, which I already mentioned was the first public shopping mall. It was a long and arduous trip. It was often dangerous. Um, it's a 15% grade going up College Hill. Um, one writer for the Prominence Journal lamented, quote, the wild forest and swampland known to us and our fathers is vast becoming unrecognizable as the trees are removed and the waters drained and this new streets formed. So these didn't last long. Um, because there are all sorts of innovations, gas lighting, city water, sewers, but these, again, were in the city center. We're talking about three miles does not seem like a lot today. I know many of you are probably runners who think three miles is nothing. But at the time, and if you understand what the landscape looks like, it, it's a vast difference. So in 1876, the omnibus route changes. Um, they create a tramway from Governor Square, um, which terminates at Butler. This is bringing people closer to the original cemetery entrance, which I imagine is no longer there. You can still kind of see the gates if you drive along Blackstone Boulevard, but they're not very grand looking today in comparison to the actual entrance. 
they decided around the turn of the century. The development and completion of a grand boulevard. Now, I know I have talked about the City Beautiful movement before. So keep in mind the 1890s, 1893 is the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. The idea of beautifying cities. And when you talk about grand boulevards, I always think my favorite is in Philadelphia. So if you have ever done the rocky run up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art and stood at the top. You are looking at one of the city beautiful grand boulevards. It is wide. It is picturesque. And if you look, it connects two great landmarks. That was the idea behind boulevards. So they did two things. They created a tramway for a trolley line and incorporated that into a grand boulevard. So the development and completion of Blackstone Boulevard and its Central Park Esplanade allowed for the trolley line to continue right to the new entrance of the cemetery, which would open in 1899. The cemetery built a new stone trolley center for visitors. It's still there today to wait for those coming and going to the cemetery. So not only did they build a boulevard. So the thing about a boulevard is it is two unidirectional roads. So if you are coming into the boulevard, obviously on the right-hand side, you have southbound traffic. And on the left-hand side, you have northbound traffic. I'm trying to get my bearings without it being in front of me. Then in the center, you have a park. And today, it is a running path, uh, especially during quarantine. I was there last week. You know, lots of joggers, lots of moms with strollers, lots of beautiful trees planted along there. But back in the day, there was actually a trolley line that ran down the center. And there was a trolley shelter. It's beautiful. It's very rough and picturesque, um, very rustic. Um, Again, I can post pictures of this because it is still there. So, just as the omnibus and later trolley lines helped encourage and expand the sales opportunities to the middle class, who could not afford a fine horse and carriage to transport them to the outside skirts of the city, but with the advent of automobiles, the future could be served in a dual purpose. Not only would it make it easier for the wealthy to access the cemetery, but the presence of automobiles and well-designed roads to house them also would encourage the growth of the budding city neighborhood of Blackstone. Its location and landscape made land, which was swiftly improving due to the efforts of the cemetery, mainly in terms of drainage, very desirable for development. Having paved roads meant not only that wealthy patrons could travel with ease, but that their vehicles could make the trip and stay there. This meant that construction could begin to create domestic dwellings with far less hassle as the transportation of construction materials at such a distance would be a lot easier. And businesses that would develop along Hope Street on the Providence side and East Avenue on the Pawtucket side now had the necessary supplies they needed to be delivered for their clientele. The key to this vision would be a grand boulevard style running through the cemetery's land. Now, this is something I have not mentioned before, but the cemetery itself was much larger than it is today. And the reason that it was originally much larger was because there was no Blackstone Boulevard. So if you go there today, Blackstone Boulevard was originally straddled by the cemetery. 
Likewise, if you see the Great Road and the cemetery, that was originally where the post road was. So there was, until the 1940s, a road, a post road that ran right through the cemetery. Eventually, as I already mentioned, it was closed. But that's the reason that there is one very straight, very obvious street running through the cemetery. That neck road, the old neck road. They closed that later on. Um, and it's interesting because if you look at where the neck road terminates, there's actually another cemetery called Riverside Cemetery. Um, right on the other side of Swan Point's fence, there is an old florist shop right there on the corner where Swan Point meets Riverside Cemetery. The reason that that was located where it was is precisely for this reason. Because that was originally a road, and so somebody was smart enough to build a floral shop right there at the entrance to the cemetery so that people could get their flowers there. It's one of those remnants. Obviously, the road has been closed now for 75 years, but you can still see that. And it was an active floral shop until maybe five years ago. I do believe it is closed now. But those are the trace remnants that you can see from time to time that a lot of people, if you don't know what you're looking for, probably wouldn't notice, but there's still clear evidence. And that's a perfect example of a business that would not otherwise exist there if it wasn't for the cemetery. So I'm going to tell you the story of Blackstone Boulevard, because obviously today, if you have been to this part of Providence, it's the major draw. Swamp Point turned to the city in 1892 with a proposal for the development of a new road which would run from Butler Avenue to Irving Avenue and then eventually to Rochambeau to connect to the terminus at East Avenue in Pawtucket. City council records indicate that the development was largely a collaboration of the private corporation of the cemetery with the city. Swamp Point would hire the noted city developer HWS Cleveland from the Midwest to help them realize their vision. Cleveland would also work specifically for the city, helping them to develop some of their public parks, including the one that runs along the center of Blackstone Boulevard. He designed a wide, graciously appointed boulevard with two unidirectional roads measuring 50 feet wide and a center median of 100 feet that would be used by the city as park space. The road development plans had fallen to Swan Point, while the portion of land that would become parkland was purchased by the city from the cemetery at a cost of $2,000 paid by an account deed approved by the city solicitor and developed in conjunction with the adjoining streets. The street was named in 1893, and by 1894, the city had paid to have the land graded in preparation for the road being laid. In return, the extension of Rochambeau Avenue that extends to what is today Blackstone Boulevard was abandoned by the city and reverted to Swan Point Cemetery. This is the first of many steps that the cemetery would take to ensure isolation and privacy for their patrons. Controlling traffic flow as the area of, era of automobile transportation emerged was also an important factor in the neighborhood developing in the layout and character that it did. Despite the heavy industrial and crowded nature of Providence in the neighborhood, the neighborhood of Blackstone, even in the 21st century, retains a 19th century charm and atmosphere, largely due to the civic planning measures that Swan Point took in the early 20th century. The design of the boulevard is very much in keeping with the City Beautiful movement that was sweeping America at the time. The boulevard today, considered Blackstone's finest and most distinctive feature, fulfilled all of its noblest intentions, but more so than anything else would be the key that the neighborhood needed to become more than simply home to a cemetery and an asylum.
So when you talk about this area today, what you need to consider is that there was very little else around. As a result, Swan Point was able to gobble up all of these farms. But once Blackstone Boulevard is there, they start to have a problem. So there are certain aspects of Swan Point Cemetery that are located on the other side of the road. The superintendent's house, which still exists, it is beautiful. The superintendent's house, um, beautiful Tudor Revival house. They had greenhouses. They had lots of buildings that were then separated. It's difficult to have facilities on both sides of the road. And also, it's going to become an increasingly busy road. It's not like you're in an industrial park where, you know, the only people working in the area are the industrial park patrons. It's completely different. So, the development of the land on the western side of Blackstone Boulevard became the paramount concern of Swan Point Cemetery following the turn of the century. While the importance of the boulevard to cemetery development cannot be overstated in terms of ease of access and development of the surrounding neighborhood, it also permanently changed the topography of the area and essentially divided the cemetery's land, much as the Neck Road had prior to the development of the boulevard. This land would eventually be used to meet three needs. First, to provide a location for the infrastructure of the cemetery, including housing for the superintendent and other employees, as well as a massive maintenance building. Second, this land would supply much-needed economic revenue as labor shortages during both the World Wars and the economic downturn of the Great Depression impacted the cemetery and the surrounding area. Thirdly, it would become a major bargaining tool between the cemetery and the city as this land would become increasingly valuable as a commodity. And through the cemetery's largesse, the city would be able to carry out many civic development projects it otherwise could not have accomplished. Okay. In terms of city law, it is very important that there is a resolution passed which would reshape the way that Swan Point dealt with excess. Undeveloped land on the western side of Blackstone Boulevard. Throughout its history, Swan Point, like all cemeteries, had been tax-exempt. The city of Providence, no doubt strapped for cash at the height of the Depression, passed a resolution changing that, saying that land specifically developed for internments could not be taxed. However, land that was not under development uh, for graves could be. This meant that all of the land on the opposite side of Blackstone Boulevard was now taxable. In 1933, Swan Point Cemetery donated six acres of land at the apex of the intersection of Hope Street and Blackstone Boulevard to the city for the development of a park. It was agreed that the land must be developed within five years of the donation. A convenient timeline, as the park development would become a large WPA project for the city of Providence. So, this is today Alexander Farnham Lippitt Memorial Park. Uh, It is still there. It has a beautiful Art Deco fountain. Like I said, it still exists there in non-COVID times. was a wonderful farmer's market there every week. It's still a picturesque little spot. The role that Swan Point Cemetery played... In the city's efforts to stem the poverty and social issues of the Depression is broad. This move, while certainly self-serving, donated land that was both tax, a tax incentive due to its donation, but also saved the cemetery the cost of paying taxes on the land that was useless for burials at this point. Simultaneously, it was also the first step that the cemetery took to try to put people back to work, through their insistence that the land be immediately developed within the following five years. Simultaneously, the cemetery also took land, 
not immediately available for sale to turn into a community garden that helped feed those affected by the depression. In terms of the growing neighborhood, Swan Point was showing itself to be an important neighbor, not just in terms of the influence they had, but the civic infrastructure. The most unique factor about the neighborhood of Blackstone is that all of the, of, all of the neighborhoods of Providence, it is still overwhelmingly residential, with only tiny pockets that classify as commercial. Residential versus commercial neighborhoods attract different forms of tenants with specific job profile and income level. Unlike inhabitants in blue-collar professions working at lower wage levels, these individuals do not need to live close to their place of employment because they own a personal vehicle utilizing public transportation versus, excuse me, utilizing public transportation and can travel easily for basic needs like food and clothing. Most importantly, the individuals who would settle in Blackstone could offer to buy rather than rent their homes. Unlike the initial wealthy residents who bought family plots in Swamp Point Cemetery, they could also easily journey from their home carriage and later automobile. The lots in Blackstone, particularly those fronting Blackstone boulevards, had dimensions far exceeding anything that could be found in even the most affluent sections of Providence at the time. The abundance of land from the former Great Cat Swamp and now defunct farms meant that the area, initially a streetcar accessible area, now an automobile-based suburb, was far more suburban in nature from its very founding. One point itself would lead the way in setting an example through not just the building of roads, but through the construction of service buildings and a superintendent's house in the Grand Tudor Revival style. Designed by Clark and Howe, the superintendent's house became the jewel of the growing neighborhood with its elegant design and enormous scale. It would serve as the home for generations of superintendents, including a pair of father and son successive superintendents, for half a century as the neighborhood grew around it. So the best way to prompt people to build big fancy homes is to start by building the first big fancy home. So you now have a beautiful boulevard, the linchpin of the City Beautiful movement. You have Swan Point Cemetery building these beautiful Tudor and Gothic revival buildings that are kind of encouraging this. They have now donated land for a grand park. So they are designing the type of neighborhood that they want to be in. And this is a pretty unique thing. And this is one of the reasons that I think it's a good story. It's one of the reasons I think it's a story that kind of has to be told. So often we see the stories of these rural cemeteries that they buy a beautiful piece of land and they develop it. Now, by developing it, they do often attract people. In certain cases, like I can think of the example of Laurel Hill in Philadelphia, they attract other cemeteries. In fact, this is probably the most common in that you have a little network of cemeteries that all develops. And this is something that doesn't just happen in Philadelphia. It happens all across the United States where you have little clusters of cemeteries. Mount Auburn, for example, bumps right up against the city cemetery and the Catholic cemeteries. I can't think of another example where a cemetery puts in the infrastructure that allows the neighborhood to develop and allows the neighborhood to develop on their terms. That makes concessions to allow for green space to remain. Now, if you look at Swamp Point, there is a great deal of Swamp Point that is still undeveloped land or very little developed land. 
because when you are in the cemetery, the fact that you are that close to a big city is never evident. And now I'm not saying that this is unique. There are lots of cemeteries that are like this, but through the design of Blackstone Boulevard, they controlled the type of traffic and the amount of traffic. Through the design of integrated parkland, both in Lippitt Park and the Blackstone Boulevard Park that runs along the middle, they have very much integrated themselves into the landscape in a way that helps to control not just future development, but also what kind of development there is. So I think it's frankly a pretty good story. So I'm at an hour right now, so I'm going to tie this up by talking about kind of the last time period. Um, they definitely are influential. So, for example, in 1907, the American cemetery presidents visit the cemetery and they talk a lot about some of the developments that they've made. Um, there are going to be more roads that are built. Um, keep in mind that the development of the Lawn Park Cemetery starts to take over in the 19-teens. So all of this stuff when they're donating land, when they're investing in the capital, happens at a time when many rural cemeteries are starting to become out of fashion. And that never really happens at Swan Point. I think because they are making themselves very vital. I think that they are continuing to be especially during the Great Depression, because in the in the 20s and 30s, frankly, I think, I don't know if it's just WPA, but this is when a lot of rural cemeteries are moved. Um, not only are they helping through the national crisis as they are, you know, doing grading and subsoiling work so they can hire people on, but they are also using these people to farm, to grow food, to feed the homeless, um, but they are also sneakily picking up foreclosed properties, roughly about 20 of them at the same time. So that by the time that World War II ends, so in 1944, almost the end of World War II, their permanent fund, so their what we would today call a perpetual care fund, had grown to $750,000, so three quarters of a million. And they immediately flipped this money and funded a columbaria, they built a new crematorium, and at the centennial in 1947, there's a great map that shows what Swan Point Cemetery looks like, and these maps were drawn as part of the centennial, and they give you an idea of what it looks like. So you can see Lippitt Park, and there are still, in 1947 at the centennial, two big parcels, and these big parcels will be like the last step. So, Throughout the 1950s, annual flower shows for tulips and chrysanthemums were held that attracted gardeners from the surrounding area. And the fountain that originally sat at the historic John Brown House, yes, those Browns, was donated by the renowned Historical Society as a backdrop for the event to honor Marsden Perry, the man who had restored the John Brown House and is now buried in a mausoleum that is an exact replica of the house at Swan Point. Even today, the president of Swan Point Cemetery is also the head of the Blackstone Parks Conservancy. They're the ones that restored the trolley center. Fun fact. So, that last step, and if you look at aerial photographs, 
prior to the 1950s, you can see the land that was still owned by Swan Point Cemetery. That was the part that in that 1947 map I was just talking about had the superintendent's house. It had some of the maintenance buildings, which were also beautiful. It's a shame they were torn down. What they did in the 1950s is they finally decided to make the break and they subdivided that land, broke it down into plots. And if you look at Blackstone Boulevard now, there is a cluster of houses basically from Elm Grove Avenue down to Lippitt Park that are all small, tiny. Some of them are ranches. Some of them are what I would call mintrads, minimal traditional houses. Here in Georgia, we like to call them the American small house which I think is a made-up term. Sorry, former Georgia Shippo. But these minimal traditional houses that were clearly built in like the late 40s, early 50s, all of that land was subdivided and sold. And so Swan Point Cemetery shored up their finances. They made a ton of money because by this point, Blackstone Boulevard was where the millionaires lived. It's where the doctors lived. It's where the lawyers lived. It was the ritziest part of town. It's where all of the professors lived. If you have ever watched um, the drama from the 1990s, late 90s, early 2000s called Providence. The house from Providence is in this neighborhood um, and they do a lot of vistas. I believe the mother's funeral scene was actually filmed at one point from what I can recall. But they knew that this land was in hot demand and in the 50s with the housing shortage that happens post-war, they banked. They rolled in the money and they sold all of that remaining land. So now that everything is on one side of the road, all of the land on the other side, they were either savvy and sold or they donated to the city. And so they got out of the city's taxation laws that arose in the 1930s and they continued the development of the neighborhood. I think it's pretty impressive. And this is granted, I I know I am biased, but I have not heard of another cemetery that has been this savvy about their decision-making, that has been this savvy about how they put infrastructure in and they used infrastructure to attract people. And let me tell you, Swan Point, I was there Christmas Eve. Weird, I know. But I was there Christmas Eve. It was almost getting dark. They closed their gates at 5. I must have seen 75 people in there walking and it was almost pitch black it was dark all of my photos that I took that night I had to considerably lighten in order to get them to not look terrible even with a flash it's vital in the neighborhood people walk there people walk with strollers people take picnics there in a similar way to what Oakland Cemetery is here in Atlanta. But the fact is, Swan Point is still someplace that unless you live in the neighborhood, you have to drive to. And in my mind, if people are driving someplace, it has to still have that. And Swan Point is still selling plots. They are still an active cemetery. They are the rare rural cemetery that virtually does no programming. And I think this continues to maybe be a savvy choice. I don't really understand it. I went on a tour there once. They lead tours maybe two, three times a year. They don't do the carriage tours. They don't do the Christmas concerts. They don't do the, you know, Shakespeare in the cemetery. They they don't do any of the stuff that, you know, Greenwood and Mount Auburn and Laurel Hill, other cemeteries of a similar age, they don't do what they are doing. I'm not sure how they continue to pull it off. I think that they could, they would be very smart if they did that, but for whatever reason, they've chosen not to. So there you go. The capital city of the smallest state in the United States, but still a pretty fascinating story. 
how cemeteries, which are so often painted as a negative thing to have in your neighborhood, in reality can do incredible things when they are allowed to do them. Also, just goes to show that having to pay taxes on land is a big incentive to do good. So, Happy New Year's from Tomb with a View. Going back 14 years ago, that's really the nexus of this whole cemetery podcast. That's where it started, so I figured it was a good place to start the new year. I am almost at a year now doing this solo, and uh, I am still enjoying myself. I am still passionate about it, and thank you, because I know that there are so many new listeners and so many people who have really rallied behind me and have been kind enough to tell me that you do enjoy the podcast, that you look forward to it every week. And that just tickles me because there have been some tough points in my life when I have definitely felt that way about podcasts. And to know that I have become vital to my listeners is really important. The same way that, you know, a newspaper or a cemetery or anything can have that value. And, you know, there's been something floating around from Twitter where they talk about the Queen's Gambit and uh, how people said that a television show about chess would never be popular. And now something like 62 million people have viewed it. And it's funny because I've read the book and I never thought it would translate into a miniseries. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it when they did. Likewise, I think there are a lot of people who say that cemeteries are not something that we should talk about and cemeteries are not important. I think the fact that all of you are listening proves that they still are. So uh, it's been an interesting almost 15 years since I took that snowy drive through Swan Point, but I still think it's a good story and it's something I'm still passionate about and I look forward to sharing more of that with you. If you are enjoying it, wonderful late Christmas present would be to rate and review. That five-star review, I cannot tell you how much it counts. Um, I know most of you are listening on Apple Podcasts, but on Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts, I am across all of the myriad of apps. Um, Of course, follow along on Facebook and Instagram, Tomb Period with Period A Period View on Instagram, Tomb with View Podcast on Facebook. I will be sharing lots of the maps and other photos of things that I talked about today um, because I think they're definitely worthwhile. Um, And luckily, like I said, I was just at Swan Point, so I'll have some good photos for you as well. We'll be back with more next week, but for now, Happy New Year. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clavin, and this is Tomb with a View.